Indeed, what a lovely service, a beautiful day that the God of heaven has granted, given each of us to enjoy, that the health is given to each of you and me this morning with the capability of appreciating the grandeur and the truly almighty God of heaven and what he's fashioned with his wonderful and powerful hand. As I stand before you and look over the audience this morning, as quite often the case, we're blessed with a number of visitors, plus our regular membership. It's just a great day for us to be together and to build one another up in the most holy faith using the precious teaching of God and His Word. As has already been mentioned a few times today and furthermore over the last few weeks, we are rapidly approaching our gospel meeting. And in fact, a few thoughts that you might consider with me concerning it will form the bedrock for our study, our lesson, if you will, this Lord's Day morning. In fact, isn't it intriguing? There are a number of congregations, obviously, in both Putnam County, Jackson County, and even surrounding areas, and a very many of them have at least one, if not more than one, gospel meeting each year. With all of those gospel meetings, it would do us well to remind ourselves, what's the purpose of a gospel meeting? Why go to the effort, the energy, the labor, and the work to have one? There are, in fact, some very, very good reasons, and let's study that topic somewhat more seriously and somewhat more intently this morning. As we start that consideration and begin that study, I've listed some thoughts that we each should well keep in mind as we look forward to two weeks from today. At this particular point, you might wonder why this lesson is delivered today and not next Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day, my family and I will be unable to be with you. I've been invited to be a part of a friends and family day at the Broadway Church of Christ in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And so we will be there next Lord's Day, and we certainly ask your prayers to be with us during that endeavor. But certainly capable hands are, will be taking care of the services here. Appreciate the good men of our congregation who are going to be doing that. I know it will be a blessing indeed. So I thought today, as we realize that two weeks from today our meeting begins, today would be a day for us to think about this gospel meeting more carefully. You and I need to pray about it diligently. There is, in fact, a tremendous power that's to be found in prayer. Didn't James affirm in James 5:16, "...the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." We thus need to be earnest and incessant in our prayer. For as we do that, we'll be beseeching the aid of the God of heaven. But in addition to prayer, let us seriously invite our neighbors, our acquaintances, our friends, those with whom we associate. After all, they may well be the very ones who need the lessons that, that Brother Watkins will bring for us. As we invite others, let us remember to make it a point to be present ourselves to be there to build up the congregation, to be benefited by the lessons that are brought and the fellowship that's to be had. It is a special time indeed. To think about all of that, though, notice at the bottom of the screen, without question, the focus on eternal matters is one thing we mustn't lose sight of. A gospel meeting may present a beautiful time for fellowship, but that's not the primary reason it's held. A gospel meeting may provide a perfect opportunity to become better friends with those of sister congregations, and that's fantastic. That's not the principal reason, though, that it's held. There may be a dinner on the ground after the opening service of a meeting, and that's a great time to share some wonderful food, but that's not the primary reason for a gospel meeting. 
A gospel meeting has as its design, its principal thrust, the focus on eternity. It is a time to encourage greater faithfulness in those that are already faithful. It's a time to encourage the wayward Christian to think urgently and seriously about the eternal welfare that they're in. Lastly, it is a time to hopefully reach those with the gospel who have yet to obey it at all. Those who are doomed to an eternity apart from God. That's the reason that a gospel meeting is held. To bring to them an opportunity to one more time hear the gospel and obey it while the time and the opportunity is theirs. As we think, though, about that aspect of its focus, let's turn to a text thinking about the nature of that one that was read in our hearing a, bit of, a few minutes ago. In 2 Timothy 4, as we look at verse number 2 in a moment in some detail, I would ask that you ponder with me the thrust and to use this as a means of appreciating this gospel meeting that will be beginning two weeks from today. As we begin that study, let me ask you to consider a few thoughts that place it in its context. The aged Apostle Paul was a valiant soldier for the cross of Christ. In fact, from that time of the road to Damascus onward, he gave his entirety of life's energy and effort to the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Various missionary journeys, attempts in all kinds of perils and difficulties, shipwrecks, journeys and beatings, and he endured them all because he understood the preciousness, privilege and power of the, un, of the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. As that precious apostle reached near the close of his days, the last letter that he wrote, the last one preserved by inspiration for you and me is 2 Timothy. We gain in this four-chapter book a noble impression of how that precious apostle was approaching death. We see in that letter inspired things, timeless teachings, and information that you and I need today as desperately and as sorely as it was needed then. In fact, notice the movement through this book. Beginning in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verses 9 and 10, Paul wastes no time in addressing Timothy and pointing this out to him. He says, speaking of God in Christ, who hath called us and saved us. The salvation that we enjoy, Paul notes, none other than through the graciousness and goodness of the God of heaven on our behalf. After all, in sin, we were His enemies. Romans 5, 8, those enemies that we were of Him, we didn't deserve the blood of Jesus. We didn't deserve the blessedness available to us. But nonetheless, God in His mercy and in His loving kindness extended to us what we never could have earned on our own. But as Paul addresses that, he makes certain that Timothy understands that life and immortality hath been brought to light through the gospel. Where is it that we find the only trustworthy message of eternal life? No book written by men has it. No book written by any scholar, no matter how learned or knowledgeable he or she may be. But Jesus Christ hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, verse 10 of chapter 1. Thus, when you and I need to learn about life, how to live life here fully and with enjoyment and with prospect of eternity in heaven, there is but one way to do it. It's through the teaching of Jesus. Notice, though, that the very nature of that gospel is something that we need to be often reminded of it. 
Isn't it fascinating that perhaps from a young child, you and I have been taught the basic truths and elements of, of the gospel. But as we age, we still need to hear about that. We need to be reminded of it. To that extent, notice what Paul told Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, verse number 2, he expressly said, "...in the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also." What is it that those were to teach? The very same things that they had been taught. The gospel's timeless. You and I need to hear it over and over and over again. Notice verse 14 of chapter 2. There he says, Of these things put them in remembrance. When a preacher stands before you and me in boldness and courage and preaches this truth, it matters not how many times we may have heard that same subject broached. We will be reminded of eternal matters. With Brother Watkins coming our way two weeks from today, during the lessons that he shares, and we certainly should pray for the benefit in his study and his preparation, but as he brings those lessons, you and I will be able to leave Wednesday encouraged, having a better understanding and a better conviction and assurance of those things that he will teach. Notice that Paul told Timothy, you put them in remembrance. You remind them. However, we should note at this point there's a couple of options. There are those who upon hearing will gladly receive that message. They will believe it to be true. They'll put their trust in it. For those people, we can be so thankful. In fact, notice that Paul even makes note of that circumstance in this book. In chapter 1, verse 16 and following, that good friend Onesiphorus was his brother in the gospel. He had heard the precious message and he obeyed it. Later in the book, notice others who also were stated to be of that same framework. What about chapter 3, verse 15? Notice, there the very discussion is about Timothy from a babe having known the Holy Scriptures. Why is that? There was a lady named Eunice and another named Lois. Chapter 1, verse 5, Timothy's mother and grandmother respectively, they had instilled within him their passion and their love for the Word of God. And they thus were able to help him grow up to be a man, knowing the Scriptures, appreciating its truth, understanding its power. You see, as a gospel meeting approaches, you and I can benefit in that way too, coming to know better the truth. But isn't it sad? There are some who will not accept it. Though they're presented with it, they turn a deaf ear to it. This book mentions a few of them as well, and it's a sad note. What about chapter 1, verse 15? There were those opponents to Paul, those in fact who had made his way so hard and difficult, they had turned aside from him. What about those in chapter 2, verses 13 and following, where there mention is made about some who thought the resurrection had passed already, and Paul said that they were greatly in error. You see, the whole reason perhaps is summarized in chapter 3, verse 13. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. We know that we live in perilous times in the sense that so many do not have a proper attention for the Word of God. They'd rather substitute the commandments of men, something condemned by Jesus in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. But here, as these evil men and false teachers 
abound, we need to have, have ready, thus saith the Lord. We must be ready always to give answer to every man that asketh us a reason that is for the hope that's within us with meekness and fear. As we read in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, to say all that perhaps leads us to note that there's a final element of reasoning that Paul mentions near the close of this book. And it's a brilliant stroke of eternal genius. As he reaches the last words perhaps he was ever to share with Timothy, he comes to chapter 4. The last stanza in this great book, and notice how it begins. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. As we reach that point, perhaps some of the brightest words of all to yet be found. For Paul says, The time of my departure is at hand. I'm now ready to be offered. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Much could be said about that set of eight verses, but I would ask that as we prepare for this gospel meeting, why don't we revisit verses 2 and 3, but especially verse number 2. What were these instructions that Paul gave to Timothy? If you again notice verse number 2, I have begun on this next slide to tear that verse apart a bit. Let's look at each word and try to gain a sense of the commandments that were given. Preach. That word preach in the Greek means to herald or to proclaim. It means to tell or to show forth. Thus, Timothy was told to speak something, to preach and to make it known. Quite often in the New Testament, we see many examples of preaching. The deliverance of these discourses. For instance, in Acts 2, verses 14 and following, Peter stood up with the eleven on the day of Pentecost and he preached the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later in that same book, on the first missionary journey, a very innocent verse, but in Acts 14 it simply says, and they preached the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? In a world that was filled at that time with mythology and ideas that were so wrong, Paul and Barnabas simply stood up and preached the gospel. Later on in that book, in Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, here on the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas stood up, and in Thessalonica, that noble city of the Roman Empire of the ancient days, nonetheless preached not Roman mythology, not Greek architecture. They preached the truth of Jesus Christ we begin to see this matter of preaching was not something taken lightly. The apostles appreciated it, and so too, even in public and private ways, they shared the good news. In Acts 18, verses 24 and following, it was here that a man named Apollos was in such a way that they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. That is, Aquila and Priscilla did that. Preaching. It might be interesting to note that the verb that was used by Paul 
is in such a form as this was an imperative thing. Timothy was given no option. I wonder about you and me today. Is that same imperative given to you and me? Absolutely. You see, Timothy was blessed and sufficiently able to stand in a pulpit and preach. That's a noble and needed thing. But even house to house and daily, as they did in Acts 5, 41 and 42, you and I can do that. To speak with someone individually and share with them the eternal truth that can save their soul. That's what preaching is all about. But not only that, may we in fact notice what was it? What was the object of Timothy's preaching? Preach the Word. Amazing, isn't it, that in a day where there was great emphasis placed upon genealogies, tremendous emphasis placed upon one's mythological heritage, that was not what Paul said. Timothy, preach the Word. Notice that word, Word, clearly refers to the Scriptures. Every time that that specific reference is made in the New Testament, it's always to the same. Consider a few passages and texts with me. In the 17th chapter of Acts, verse 11, what was it that occurred there? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. What it was that they received, they matched it to what? The Scriptures. Word and Scriptures go hand in hand. That grand and beautiful Word revealed from heaven, that Word that can produce eternal life, Scriptures. Thus, Paul was told, and he shared that with Timothy, to preach the Scriptures. Today, we need pulpits filled with Scripture preaching, don't we? In fact, we don't need anything else. Those who tell stories and jokes and fables and other stories, perhaps as an illustration, Nothing wrong with that. But if that's the entire content of the preaching, it's devoid of power. It is completely lacking in that which meets the commandment that Paul gave to Timothy. Preach the Word. Thus, we search for Brother Watkins and we desire him to stand before us and to preach book, chapter, and verse and nothing else. For that's the only thing that will be of eternal benefit to you and me. The preaching of the Word, I've listed some other passages for your consideration. Notice that I listed Philippians 1.14 where Paul there even noted that from a prison cell to the Philippians, he spoke about the powerful character of the proclamation of the truth. Later, we also notice in Hebrews 4 verse 2, the preaching of the gospel was mandated. In 1 Peter 1 verse 25, the Word of God shall stand forever. And this is the word that was preached unto you through the gospel. You see, God's word for our age is this gospel, and we need a lot of it. We live in a world that has lost interest in so many ways in it. Man thinks he can devise his own ways. He thinks his ideas are as good as God's. And so often the very last book that's ever looked at is this one. Men may peruse a self-help section at a bookstore. They may turn to articles and catalogs and other things, but all the while, the aid that's to be found is only this one. Preach the Word, Paul told Timothy. But that isn't all that he said. For notice in that verse, he says, be instant. What does that mean? We think about an instant of time. By that, we mean a short interval or short duration, but that's not what that word meant in Greek. 
That word simply means to stand ready and to be always alert. Let's notice then, to Timothy, Paul said, Preach the Scriptures, you be ready and alert always with regard to the preciousness of that word. We anticipate that Brother Watkins will be alert, prepared, and ready to preach to you and me the truth that God has revealed. But notice as we consider that alertness, doesn't that remind us of Acts 17, verses 6 and following? Where on that occasion, in that city of Thessalonica, Paul met with such opposition. And there were those who proclaimed that those of the way have come and they've turned the world upside down. And they've come here also. Notice that those that had turned the world upside down were Christians. They had a message the world needed to hear and they were always ready and alert to share it. In Acts 8 verse 4, the text reads, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Isn't it interesting that those who were sufficiently persecuted didn't leave the word behind. Though the word, the scriptures had caused them great affliction and oppression, wherever they went they preached the word too. Thus, this word is something for which you and I must be instant, always ready and alert to defend it. But what's more, Paul wasn't yet finished yet. Be instant in season, out of season. What does that phrase mean? Interestingly enough, we probably could have easily guessed that one by the character of the English sentence. But again, in Greek, it means to Timothy, Timothy, you be instant and you be that one who preaches, whether it's convenient, whether it's favorable, or whether it's not. That is to say, the audience and the character thereof does not determine the ultimate basis of the message that's preached. We must preach this word. It's what men need to hear, isn't it? We can't stand and preach a kind social gospel that has no demands of them. We need to have the pure gospel in all of its glory proclaimed. That's what Paul did everywhere he went. That's what he urged Timothy to do as well. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. What about this matter of reproving? That word in the Greek means to reprehend severely. Furthermore, to convict, to point out error with the hopeful intent of repentance. That is, to Timothy, Paul said, you preach the pureness and power of the gospel. You do so to rebuking those who need rebuked. The idea of rebuking is to convict, to share with them those truths of correction with a hopeful intent that they will repent of their error. Isn't that what we do today? That's what a gospel meeting in part is hopefully going to accomplish those in our community who are living in error, who believe error and who follow error, we hope they will come. We hope that the opportunity will present to them sufficient question that they will be present with us and they will be rebuked. Now we don't want to just rebuke in the sense of making them angry and driving them away, but we hope as they study they'll question and ultimately they will repent. Jesus hoped that, did he not, in Matthew 23? There, as he addressed those Pharisees, he was very stern with them. He told them directly that you are leading men to eternal perdition, verse 15. Verses 23 and following, you're like whited sepulchers, pretty on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones, as it were. 
All the while, Jesus hoped that they would respond in acceptance. Sadly, they didn't, but it was their choice. Consider other examples of where that rebuking took place. In 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 1, the church in Corinth was beset with a number of difficulties. And yet to them, Paul said, I could not preach to you as spiritual, but rather, but rather as unto babes, because you are carnal. That's a pretty stern statement for someone who thought that they were righteous. Paul had to tell them that you need to grow up. You're still babes in Christ. The only foundation is Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. Thus, when you and I rebuke, we do so like Jesus with a heart of love. We want their soul to be saved. We want them to come to know the truth. And we want them to accept and readily obey that truth. Notice also some other terms that Paul used. In addition to that first word of reprove, he said rebuke. That word rebuke means to warn, to strongly admonish. The gospel does not leave much room for equivocation, does it? It leaves little room for compromise, little room for sidestepping the matter. God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. As we open the 27 New Testament books then and preach how men ought to live in this day and time, we need to hear that. The world needs to hear that. Over and over again, we should be reminded of it. Notice some examples of rebuking. Romans 16, verse 17. As Paul drew near the close of that Roman letter, he very harshly but very lovingly said to those brethren in Rome that they needed to be always aware and to be on guard and even to avoid those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine of Christ. Paul even thus noted in that day there were some who lived and taught contrary to the gospel. And Paul said, you mark them and you avoid them. Today, as you and I are aware of false doctrine and teachings that are contrary to this, we again should lovingly reprove and rebuke them. Try to show them their mistake and error, but if they will not accept the truth, we can't fellowship them. We cannot openly accept it as though they were one with Jesus. For do we not read later in the New Testament in 2 John 9-11, through He that's not with me in doctrine is against me. Similar statement of Matthew 12, verse 30, isn't it? All the while we notice that this gospel meeting thus provides us an opportunity to reprove and rebuke when that's important and necessary. But Paul also notes exhortation. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. That word means to beg, to urge, to encourage. It's true that we will encourage the unfaithful and encourage the wayward Christian, but can we not say that we'll encourage the faithful Christian too? We each need to be encouraged. In a world that so often presents meanness, wickedness, ugliness, and ungodliness, where we see men behave in ways that are unexplainable, we need to be encouraged. We need to realize that God's tomorrow is brighter than our today. We need to know that there is a home in heaven that awaits the faithful and that our eyes must be riveted upon it. it so it is that this exhortation, this encouragement is a vital matter. No wonder Paul said, Don't only, Timothy, give your attention to, the Christian, or to those that are unfaithful. Those members of your flock, 
Those who are Christians, they too need to be encouraged. The edification that we experience are such that I've listed some passages for your consideration. In 1 John 5, 21, the very last verse in that interesting little book, John refers to those to whom he wrote as, Dear brother, as little children. Little children. Isn't that a lovely phrase that a beloved apostle could consider his brothers and sisters in Christ as little children? What a term of encouragement. That encouragement that we shall gain from our gospel meeting will be of great benefit. I've noted for you, though it's not apparent in English, that the verb tenses for every one of these verbs that we've studied, exhort, rebuke, reprove, preach, all of the verbs are interestingly of the form of being second person active imperative. I noted just in passing that word imperative means this is a commandment. You and I as Christians thus cannot consider this as an option. If we are to be faithful, if we are to be a congregation of which God is proud and happy, we must do these things. A gospel meeting is one way that's accomplished. And our elders have in their oversight and leadership chosen this gospel meeting and its speaker. And certainly we should be thankful for the opportunity, appreciative of this thing that's presented for us. What about the continuation, though, with all long-suffering and doctrine? That phrase means, with forbearance and patience, even under affliction, with teaching and with instruction. I say all those things, drawing our attention to that text today, so that you and I would remember that this gospel meeting is not a trivial nor an arbitrary matter. It's not simply something to take up a few hours for four days starting two weeks from today. It has eternal significance. It has great importance for the life of our congregation and, of course, for the precious souls who we hope will come our way. Some further thoughts that I wanted you to consider briefly as we draw near the close of the lesson today. Notice in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, perhaps a text you've already considered as we've looked at this other passage this morning. Jesus to his apostles assembled simply said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Those were the words of Jesus. A very exclusive but also a very demanding text. Again, if we are faithful Christians, we must go and preach. We're going to do that in the Pippin community of Putnam County beginning two weeks from today. Notice also in Romans 10, 14, a very similar passage where Paul just stated that those who believe are those to whom the gospel is, will be preached. And furthermore, their opportunity of remission from sins is thus made available. These thoughts, these things perhaps lead me to list for you a few more considerations, very briefly. This gospel meeting is something that, of course, is of eternal importance. We've tried to emphasize that using the text in 2 Timothy and these others that we've considered as well. We're going to have the truth preached, the truth that can save souls. In James 1, verse 21, Wherefore, laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That's what will be preached and taught. That's what will be heralded and proclaimed. In addition, 
those that are lost are in such desperate need of it. For the gospel is God's only power to save, Romans 1.16. Furthermore, we can directly conclude that those who are without God and without Christ have no hope of heaven because that's where they are. Revelation 21, verse 27, just as one text among many. It's also fair to note that we must reprove those that are erring, as we've studied today in 2 Timothy 4.3. It's also our obligation to warn saint and sinner alike, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Thus, you and I as saints will be warned, encouraged, and admonished, but those that are not Christians will also be warned and rebuked. Finally, the faithful will be encouraged. At this point, having looked at these thoughts and ideas, even before we close the lesson, I'd like to ask you to bow with me in a brief word of prayer, especially on behalf of that gospel meeting yet one more time. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful unto thee for the blessings of this Lord's day. Father, as we think of the gospel meeting that is soon to begin here, we are so much in prayer, Father, earnestly, that thou would bless that effort. Bless that gospel meeting endeavor. We pray for Brother Watkins that as he prepares his lessons and the thoughts that he shall share from thy word, that he will present those things most needful, those things that can build up and strengthen each of us as Christians here, but that shall be able to touch the hearts of those who are not members of thy body. Father, we do especially at this time pray that in thy divine providence thou will bring our way during the meeting by way of invitation or by way of other interest, those sincere souls who are seeking the truth. We pray that as thou will bring them our way, that they shall hear the message that they need to be saved, and that as they hear that and respond, their life will be changed and they shall become those precious servants of thine. Father, please be with each of us as we speak of our meeting and invite, as we help others to come our way by offering them opportunity. Help us that we might be urgent and incessant, and that thou will lead us to reach those who will be most interested and have a fertile heart willing to receive thy truth. We pray that would be with us through the further parts of our service today, O Father, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask it all. Amen. Are you a faithful Christian even now? If not, you could become one even before the gospel meeting begins. The gospel plan of salvation is provided for us in the New Testament. We can obey it. And we can recognize that in consequence thereof, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you're not a Christian today, understand that Jesus died for you. He shed His blood for you. In fact, as you think about Him hanging on that old rugged cross, as you think about the crown of thorns pushed downward on His head, as you think about the lashes that were stripped across His back, He did that for you. Do you not want to experience the salvation that He came to bring you? Believe upon Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Openly accept Him. Confess His sweet name as your Savior and be baptized for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38 If you've done that but you have lost your way, you've lost sight of the whole purpose of eternity, the whole idea behind it is for you to be ready at the day of judgment. If you've walked away from Jesus, if you haven't been faithful, come back to your first love. He still loves you. He wants you to come back to Him. Only in that way can you be the best of example to your family and to those whom you'll try to invite to come to the meeting. As we think about that meeting, let us begin to prepare then exceedingly with great earnest and power. 
Brother Harold's chosen a hymn of encouragement today. If you need to respond publicly to the gospel, let today be the day. We'd be happy to help you in any way that we can while together we stand and while we sing.